as the World Series scene shifts to Philadelphia starting tonight. The Phillies gained a split in Houston as they try to continue their winning ways at home. Can they pull it off? NFL Week 8 had very little intrigue, but what happened in Atlanta was downright awful for the Carolina Panthers. College football had a quiet week, but the Volunteers move into a tie for the number two team in the country with Ohio State. Are the Bucks the best team in the NBA? What about the Boston Bruins in the NHL? And Jake Paul wins another match against an MMA legend? Should we take notice? I'll have plenty of tricks and a few sports treats as Halloween and the final day of October is here. It's all coming up, but first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. All of the ghosts, goblins, and ghouls are out today as Halloween has arrived. There's no need to put on a mask, get your face painted, or break out your best costume for the occasion. Just pump up the volume and take heed to what is going on in the sports world through the lens of yours truly, as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday... I welcome you guys and gals back. Lots of candy, lots of treats. Like I mentioned, a couple of tricks along the way. And we'll start off with baseball because we're getting down to the final few games of this baseball season. And with the Astros and Phillies as the setting will now be in Philadelphia where you know it is going to be like New Year's Eve at Citizens Bank Park where the Astros who evened up the series winning a game two after losing game one And I'll get to that in a minute. And now that we have the three games of the middle of the series in Philadelphia where you know that the Phillies have played very well at home in this postseason. They won the two games in the division series against Atlanta. The three games against San Diego in the championship series. And now the big question mark, can they complete the job? Can they complete a home sweep through this postseason to the point where they're able To win not only a series against the 106 regular season win Houston Astros, but to win the whole shebang. 
to win the trophy, to be World Series champions. Before we get to the three upcoming games of this series, we'll take a look back to what happened on Friday and Saturday night, games one and two. And game one was a complete surprise, considering that the Astros came flying out of the gate, 5 nothing lead, propelled by two home runs from Kyle Tucker. And you're thinking at that point with Justin Verlander, who came into game one with an 0-6 World Series record, has not really stamped himself as a guy in the World Series to really deliver, considering what he's done throughout his career in the regular season. And even with the DSs and the ALCSs of the past, him being very successful in those two particular series, but the World Series, for whatever the reason, he has been snake bit, not being able to deliver when the bright lights are on. And what happened? Come Friday night with a 5-0 lead, he wasn't even able to hold that as the Phillies came storming back. And Verlander, you got to wonder. We'll talk about it a little bit later on as we try to take a look ahead at this series, but he has a big game five, which he's going to pitch in that building. So let's just keep that in mind as we work our way toward that. But for the Phillies to come back with the way they did, and they've shown that pretty much this whole postseason, Going back to game one when they were down 2-0 in the top of the ninth and they scored six runs against the Cardinals to propel them to where they're at now. I mean, think about this. Whether it was that game coming back the way they did that started this magic carpet ride, as I like to call, and then we look at what has transpired since then, and then to have that game one against, in all likelihood, the 2022 AL Cy Young Award winner and future Hall of Famer, as we know. And as we get into the game and into the ninth inning where the Astros had an opportunity to ice the game, but Nick Castellanos made the nice catch on the ball hit. I believe it was Jeremy Pena. And for him to slide and make that catch was reminiscent of game one in Atlanta when they jumped out to a 7-1 lead and then they cut it to 7-6 and Castellanos made that catch that saved the Phillies and winning that game. And it pretty much did the same here because although the game was tied... But for the Phillies to be able to get that opportunity to go to extra innings, because who knows, if that ball would have dunked in there and the run would have scored and the Astros would have won, who knows what the confidence would have been like going into a game two. But as it was, JT Realmuto hits the home run out to right field. Kyle Tucker, outstretched arm, just over, maybe about a couple of feet. And the Phillies had to sweat a ninth inning to where David Robertson, who even had mentioned that he wanted some payback against this Astro team, going back to his days as a Yankee, and to be able to get the save, he had second and third there before he was able to slam the door, and the Astros, who had another opportunity there in the 10th inning to win the game, and were unable to do so. So the Phillies were riding high, big game one victory, and you thought to yourself, with Zach Wheeler pitching in game two, even though Fran Valdez, and we understand how good he's been as well, but... If Wheeler could put up anything the way he has throughout the course of this postseason, and I understand in Atlanta, game number two, he was unable to get out of the fifth inning, but still has pitched very well throughout the course of this playoff. And for him to go up there in a game two, a lot of people thought, wow, could the Phillies actually be ahead to love before they get to Philadelphia? As it was, the Astros jumped out again to another 5-0 lead. This time in the very first inning, jumping on Zach Wheeler. First pitch, double by Altuve. Next pitch, double by Pena. And it just seemed like after that, 
and four pitches in, it was 2-0 and three doubles later. And then you want to tack on the home run by Alex Bregman, a two-run shot to make it 5-0. And the Phillies could not come back from another 5-0 hole as they were able to cruise, the Astros that is, to a 5-2 victory. Framber Valdez, nine strikeouts, six in the third inning. I know that a lot of people could look at him wiping his wrist and him going to his pant leg a lot throughout the course of the evening. Who knows if that was sweat? Who knows if whatever it may be, I'm sure a lot of people are going to look at that and say, hey, Valdez's curveball was on, spin rates, etc. He does get checked by the umpires every so often. And obviously they didn't find anything on him. So for the conspiracy theorist out there who wants to look and think that Framber Valdez or the Astros were cheating in this case, can you please come up with something else? Because the series is now even at one and let's see how it plays out as we talked about earlier now that the series is in Philadelphia. And what to expect here over the course of these next three games? It's pretty much up in the air. As you could say for any sport and any game and teams, etc. But even with that crowd... And we know it is going to be raucous. It is going to be probably borderline offensive. And we know with the Northeast fan, whether you're New York, Philly, Boston in particular, it could get very dicey. And I'm sure that the Philly fan on Halloween of all days, and it's actually pretty mild here in the Northeast as who knows what the temperature is going to be like at the start of the game. But I'm sure it's probably going to be in the upper 50s, definitely not anywhere in the 40s or maybe even with the wind chill in the upper 30s but considering it's going to be mild and it looks like it's going to be that way for the next few days I'm sure that the Philly fan is going to wreak havoc on an Astro team that let's face it they've heard it all and probably seen it all considering what took place in 2017 with the whole sign stealing scandal and all the nasty offensive words that were thrown in their direction some of it may be understandably and rightfully so but We get it, fans want to go overboard or go past that line. And I'm sure the Astros are going to do their best to kind of tone it out and just keep it to baseball, stick to the business trip that is, and trying to win at least one game so they can take this series back to Houston for a sixth game. And who knows moving forward. But as far as these next three games, the pitching matchup you'll have tonight is Noah Syndergaard because you had Ranger Suarez pitch in game one in relief. And for him to get the extra day's rest, he'll pitch in game four tomorrow. He'll go up against Lance McCullers tonight. You know McCullers is going to give you a steady diet of off-speed pitches. And this could be a game where the offenses could get going early and often. And we may get that high-scoring game similar to game one. But in that ballpark, which we know is a band box, and with it being a mild evening, there may be a ton of pitching changes Not only tonight, but I would even think tomorrow, even with Ranger Suarez going up against Kristen Javier, who's a good pitcher in his own right. But one game at a time, I could see tonight being a high-scoring game and a deep bullpen game. Tomorrow, let's see what Suarez is going to give you as far as length is concerned, considering he did pitch the other night in Houston. Javier, we know he could put up zeros and has shown that in the past, especially against the Yankees. And then you have Game 5, which is going to be intriguing to say the least. A rematch of Game 1 between Aaron Nola and Justin Verlander. And who knows where we're going to be at that point. Obviously, it's going to be one of three scenarios. It's either going to be 2-2, 3-1 Houston, or 3-1 Philadelphia. And I will say this. If it's 3-1 Houston, Justin Verlander is going to be pitching with house money. 
If it's 2-2 or if Philly is up 3-1, it's going to be the biggest start of his life. We can look at everything he's done throughout the course of his career. We can look at all the Cy Youngs, the MVP that he had in 2012, I believe it was. We can look at his dominance this year in the regular season, coming back from Tommy John in 2020. We could take a whole look at his resume, even being a World Series champion in 2017. No matter how you slice it, I think either way, whether it is tied up 3-1, down 3-1, but even more importantly, if they are down 3-1 in this series, knowing that the season is going to bank on his right arm, it is arguably the biggest start of his career. Because his Hall of Fame resume is not going to be taken away. His body of work, you're going to look at, and he's worthy of being in Cooperstown one day. But this start... If he does fail big, now mind you, if he's up 3-1 and they lose, it's going to be bad. If they're tied, yes, it's going to be a blemish, but there will be a black mark for the rest of his career because they're going to look at that game five. If he's down 3-1 in an elimination setting and he does not make it out alive, that is going to be a game that a lot of people will not forget as far as him not being able to deliver in particular with what he's done throughout the course of his career. And obviously the lack of success that he's had in the World Series. I would think the Astros are going to win at least one. They could win two. It is the Astros. Remember last year they lost games three and four in Atlanta before winning game five. And you have to really wonder whether or not the Astros are going to be primed and ready to at least take one game. And I think they will. Which game? I don't know. I will say this though. If they do win tonight, and I think it's imperative for the Astros to win tonight. Because at least they can look at the next two games. Not to say they can put their feet up. Not to say that they can rest on their laurels by any stretch. But if they win this game tonight, a lot of the pressure will be off of them. Because they do know that at least they'll be going home to play a game six. But also... If they do win a game three and they happen to lose one of the next two games, or even both for that matter, there's still going to be a lot of pressure on this team to win based on what we talked about on Thursday's podcast, knowing that for them to really cement this run of six straight ALCSs, four World Series in six years, and the one championship that is tarnished based on the scandal, to me, they really need this World Series in the worst in order to really put a bow and a cherry on the top of this run and that's not to say they can't run it back next year or the year after that etc but because they won 106 games and all the success that they've had over the years they have to put the exclamation point this year and this year only why because of what they've done this regular season and even though the Phillies are a live dog but they are 19 games better than them in the standings and to me if they win tonight I think they'll be in good shape as far as winning a series. And even if they lose tonight and win tomorrow, and it's 2-2 and in the hands of Justin Verlander come Wednesday night, you'd still feel good about your team's chances of winning that game and going on to win a World Series. And that's what makes this fascinating because you have the specter of the Astros and everything that has happened over the course of the last five, six years. And even last year with a hot Atlanta team, and it's similar to the Phillies this year. They got hot late. Although they stumbled into the postseason, losing, as I mentioned, in weeks past, getting swept in Chicago by the Cubs, losing to the Braves the way they did. And of course, the Braves were the division champs, but 
We saw what happened there in the division series. But the Phillies being that hot team, and even though they were a big underdog coming into this series, the Astros know they need to seize this moment now. And tonight is going to be indicative of whether or not, whether it's going to be the crowd, whether it's going to be the pitching by McCullers, who knows what the relief is going to be like in this setting where, granted, it's not the old Yankee Stadium, granted, it's not a particular environment where you know that you're going to feel the brunt of this crowd and they're going to be the 10th man, so to speak. So if you're the Astros, like I mentioned, you've seen it all, heard it all, etc. Just be tone deaf. And I get it, I sound like I'm breaking out the pom-poms for them. I just want to have a competitive series. I don't want this to be 3-1 and then Verlander, although it would be great theater, wondering whether or not he's going to take the Astros home for Game 6. I would like to see the Astros win tonight, Philly win tomorrow, and then Game 5 is a toss-up. And then let's have a series. That's all I'm hoping for. So I think that the Astros are going to win one game. The big question is, can they win two? And I think they can, but with the crowd and everything that I've mentioned here over the last five, six minutes, it's going to be fascinating to say the least. And no matter how you cut it, whether if, even if the Astros win tonight, how the Phillies will respond in the game four. And if they do respond, how will Verlander respond in game five? So all these different scenarios to me is going to make for some interesting theater, is going to, I would even think, excite maybe even the casual sports fan who's not really into baseball, but knowing that the Astros were cheaters once upon a time and the Phillies are the live underdog, how this may all take into shape here over the next three days, not only I think will be very compelling, but also fascinating to say the least. Now as we turn our attention to football and what's happening not only in the NFL, but also college, as I put on the helmet and shoulder pads, interesting to think that we're almost halfway into the season and... When I look back on the NFL preview that I had, and I talked about how the NFC was going to be very top-heavy, unlike the AFC, not to say it was going to be wide open, but we knew we had a bunch of teams in the AFC that could come out and represent in the Super Bowl come mid-February. We knew Buffalo was going to be formidable and in all likelihood the favorite prior to the start of the season. Of course, you couldn't discount the Kansas City Chiefs. Of course, they're the defending AFC champion Bengals. People may even look at Lamar Jackson in Baltimore. We knew at that time the AFC West was loaded, so that meant maybe the Chargers, maybe even the Broncos for that matter. Not a lot of people were talking about teams in the AFC South, but of course, Tennessee was a one seed last year. And even with the Colts bringing in Matt Ryan with their defense, maybe that was a team that a lot of people would look at and be a dark horse in the AFC. Unlike the NFC, where we just looked at three teams and that was it. And those three teams were the defending Super Bowl champion LA Rams, the Super Bowl champion prior to that in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and then the Green Bay Packers. Well, as we take a peek at the NFC on the day before November, and if I would have told you then that those three teams would be under 500 at this point of the season and nowhere near the top of the division or the NFC playoff picture, you would have told me, Jay Reels, what have you been drinking? Or maybe even worse, what have you been smoking? But as it is right this second, 
You have the Eagles in the NFC East as the only undefeated team, not only in the conference, but in the sport. The Minnesota Vikings have a cushion of a four-game lead when you think about it because they do have a game in hand with the Packers. They haven't had their bye yet, Green Bay that is. And knowing that Green Bay lost in Buffalo yesterday or last night and how they're 3-5 and five where the Vikings are 6-1 and one and the Vikings already have a head-to-head win against the Pack. The Rams now are just a game back the Rams already having their buy, actually coming off of their buy, are in essence a game and a half back behind the Seahawks in the NFC West. And then the Falcons, 500, 4-4, four and four, all alone in the NFC South. And that's where I'm going to start where we talk about our winners and losers because they pretty much all rally around that whole NFC playoff picture except for one team, and obviously I'll get to that. My winners of the week, number one, are the San Francisco 49ers. I'm going to give it up to them because all their fans flock down to the LA area. Based on what I've heard, it seemed as if there was 80-20 percentage outnumbering the Ram fan, which is a disgrace when you think about it. And as you're watching, you can just get a sense. That sea of red, you saw that there last year in the regular season finale when the Niners invaded SoFi. And of course, we saw that a few weeks later in the championship game. But if you recall, they blocked out a lot of the fan base, so to speak, where they wanted to sell most of the tickets within the LA County or LA region and not get outside of that to where the Niner fans could flock down to LA to be a part of the championship game. Well, I guess that went out the window because they came down in droves and with Christian McCaffrey throwing the trifecta, or I should say not throwing, he threw it, ran it, and caught it. First running back since LaDainian Tomlinson to do that in the game and the Niners showed who's boss. Now granted that the Rams beat him when it counted, so when we look back at this whole run where the Niners have just dominated the Rams in the regular season... They've continued to jump on that horse and they rode it right back up to Santa Clara to the tune of a 31-14 victory and give it up. It seems like the Niners, maybe after that stubbing of the toe here the last couple of weeks where they lost in Atlanta and then they lost at home last week to Kansas City to stick it to the Rams, to their fans. I'm sure it probably felt good getting out of there, not only with a victory, but getting themselves back on track. And the Niners did what they had to do where the Rams, oof, even after a bye, looks just as bad as they've been playing since before they went into the bye. And I'll just leave it at that. Winner number two, and I know I gave them some praise a couple of weeks ago, and I'm just going to do it one more time, only because I understand the game was at home, but it was against a good opponent, and even though they were due to lose, but the Seattle Seahawks, they're going to get my other winner because A, there weren't many other winners to go around throughout the sport. Winners that are going to stick out. I talked about Washington last week. And they did win again yesterday. But am I going to get crazy about them going on the road beating Sam Erlinger in the Indianapolis Colts? Absolutely not. I'm not going to talk about the Titans winning in Houston against the Texans who now extended their AFC South lead. No, I'm not going to get into that. There's a bunch of other teams that I could have looked at and said that they could have been winners. But uh uh-uh, I'm going to stick with what's happening here in the NFC West and give it up for the Seahawks. And what they've done, they certainly do not miss Russell Wilson. Geno Smith, and I talked about this even a couple weeks ago, he's played very well. He's done 
more than what you could ever imagine. Not only if you're just a Seahawk fan, of course, but even an NFL fan. Because Geno Smith, we know his trajectory of his career and how that's gone. Especially how it ended in New York, not only with the Jets and with the punch during preseason, but also his one-year stint with the Giants, having to come in for Eli that one game and then was relegated back to the bench. And to resurface in Seattle, to resurrect his career under Pete Carroll. And I'm happy for him. How could you not? And here are the Seahawks. A lot of people thought this was going to be a battle between the Rams and the Niners. And it looks like, yes, the Niners are going to be there. But can the Seahawks continue to sustain their winning ways as we inch closer and move past the second part of the season? Or second half, I should say. So give it up for what they did against the Giants. They put up 14 points in the fourth quarter when the game was tied at 13. Tyler Lockett with a 33-yard touchdown pass. And then Kenneth Walker, who had a big game the week before, capped it off with a 16-yard touchdown run with about five minutes to go. And the Giants did not have any answers for the Seahawks. And Seattle flying high out there in the NFC West all alone at a 5-3 and clip. And those are my first two winners of the week. My loser of the week, sadly, is the Carolina Panthers. Now, here's a team that has been mired. Not Mediocrity would be a compliment to discuss the first six or seven weeks of this Panther season. We know that the Baker Mayfield experiment went kaput. We know that the coach, Matt Rule, had to be jettisoned. We know that even going into this game, they were 2-5. and five. And I talked about this on the podcast Thursday, that if the stars, moon, and sun were aligned, that if the Buccaneers lost on Thursday night, which they did, to the Baltimore Ravens, and give it up for the Ravens, good job by them to be able to win on the road short week, and put it on the Bucks to where the Bucks had to make a last-ditch effort to try to come back, in which they didn't. And Lamar Jackson had a very good game in the air, but I digress. But with the Buccaneers losing, and with the NFC South, knowing that if the Saints won against the Raiders, and they put up a donut against Las Vegas, they won 24-0, embarrassing by the Raiders. Who knows what's going to happen with Josh McDaniels? It looks like that experiment is not going to go too far. They're probably going to give him this season. But you never know what Mark Davis. He could probably have a quick itchy trigger finger. But McDaniels has shown that he is not, even after, what is it, 13 years when he was a coach of the Broncos back in 2009, maybe he does not have the chops to be a head coach in his league. But one more time, Bucks lose, Saints win, and if the Carolina Panthers would win this game, you would have a flat-footed tie at the top of the NFC South where four teams would be at 3-5 and five and in first place. And it certainly looked like that for a quick moment because with 12 seconds left, P.J. Walker threw a Hail Mary to D.J. Moore, which was caught in the end zone. With the game at 34-28 and this 62-yard Hail Mary that was caught in the back of the end zone or in the middle of the end zone by D.J. Moore... And then what does he do? He takes off his helmet and starts celebrating. And I get it. There have been times throughout the last couple of years where we've seen players on the field take off their helmets, whether it's on the defensive side of the ball when they make a big stop and you see them celebrating toward the sideline but without their helmet on or an offensive player doing the same thing, whether it's celebrating a touchdown and you're wondering, oh, geez, a flag's going to be thrown there. And that goes back to the days of Emmett Smith at first and... Brett Favre, the latter, 
where a lot of people call that the Brett Favre rule. If you remember in the Super Bowl 31 against the Patriots where he threw that bomb to Andre Risen, and then when Risen gets into the end zone, Favre takes off his helmet with the helmet raised high in the air running towards Andre Risen. They figured, "Uh uh-uh, we have to squash that to where it will be an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. And for more to do that, and you're probably wondering, all right, so they got to kick the extra point and they'll win the game, right? Well, remember, they got to tack on 15 yards to the extra point. So what would have been originally a 33-yard extra point attempt becomes a 48-yard PAT. What happens? Eddie Pinheiro misses the attempt. So now the game goes into overtime. And overtime was a little wacky and crazy as it was until Young Hoku gets the field goal with 155 to go. And the Panthers, who had an opportunity to be not in first place based on their foibles at the end of the game with DJ Moore and his boneheaded decision to take off his helmet. Instead of a tie in first place, you have Carolina at 2-6 and six and Atlanta at 4-4 four and four with New Orleans and Tampa Bay sandwiched in between. And boy, if that doesn't make DJ Moore not sleep, not only last night, but for the rest of this week, I don't know what will. Loser number two, and I praised them here the last couple of weeks. It's the New York Jets. The Jets came back to earth, sadly for them and their fans, because yesterday they had an opportunity to go up against their old-time nemesis, not only in a one Bill Belichick, with his win, surpasses George Hallis, and not only that, has one more mountain to climb, that being Mount Shula to be the all-time winningest coach in NFL history, but that's another note. But for the Jets, even with a 10-6 lead and not playing particularly well, but this game you could pin on the quarterback, Zach Wilson, who has not played well other than the fourth quarter in Pittsburgh. And yes, has shown moments, the game in Miami, but the game in Green Bay wasn't really spectacular. Has not really shown to be the number two overall pick that he was a couple of years back. But for the Jets to really stub their toe here, For them to really not rise to the occasion. To know that after a Monday night embarrassment by the Patriots at home against the Bears. That they couldn't stick it to them again. So that they didn't have to worry about this team in the division. Knowing that when we look at matchups. Especially when it comes to possibly a wild card scenario in the AFC. And we get it that they have another opportunity to play against them down the road. But you had them in your building. And you had all the momentum. With this winning streak that you've had. You felt good about this team and for your quarterback, once again, has not played well, but for him to put up his worst performance of the year in this time was inexcusable. Terrible interceptions left and right, back foot throws, throws that were meant to be thrown out of bounds or out of play, getting picked off. Just a terrible job. And we understand what happened the week before them losing Brees Hall and Elijah Vera Tucker, two big components on their offense. But that was just an absolute clunker by the Jets, by the quarterback. And can they recover? Of course, they're 5-3. and three. You knew they were going to lose at some point. But for them to be in their building against that opponent and for them to not show up, especially in the second half of this game, that, my friends, you cannot stomach if you're a Jet fan. A few other games to go over here in a week eight. Not a compelling week to say the least, and we talked about this on the podcast Thursday. The matchup in 
Orchard Park last night, which should have been a marquee showdown between the Packers and Bills, was anything but. I know cosmetically it looks better when you see the final score, 27-17, but the Bills were in control of this game. I know a lot of the talk afterwards was between Stephon Diggs, the wide receiver of the Bills, and Jair Alexander, the cornerback of the Green Bay Packers. A lot of back and forth, a lot of trash talk there. Stephon Diggs talking about being one of the leaders of this team, that he's not going to let anybody come into his house and try to upset the apple cart. And I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but... The Bills, we all know that they're going to be a tough out here and who knows if they're going to be destined to be the AFC representative in the Super Bowl. You would think that's going to be the case based on how they performed. And yes, they did lose in Miami. Granted, it was 90 degree heat, but we understand it is the NFL. You're going to lose these games and it was on the road against a division opponent. So we all know no matter what the records are, no matter how good or bad the opponent is, Division games are always tricky, no matter how you cut it. So Buffalo, with a great job there last night on Sunday Night Football. And I'll say this, I haven't really talked a lot about broadcasts. I did discuss it a few weeks ago with the Amazon Prime when I watched Pittsburgh and Cleveland and watching Al Michaels and Herb Street. And I know Herb Street has gotten lukewarm reviews. I like Herb Street. I thought he's done fine, but I have not watched a lot of the Amazon Prime games. I got to admit, to me... If I have to go on there and watch a game without having to flick back and forth on other games or whatever else is on the dial during commercials or halftime, then I'm not going to waste my time. I'm just not. And a lot of these matchups have been terrible so far. I think this week, I don't even know who your Thursday night game. I'll take a look at the schedule in a bit. But I haven't been a big fan of the Amazon Prime broadcast. And no offense to Al or Herb Street, but... Again, I'm not going to just go on Amazon Prime and then have to go out of Amazon Prime to watch whatever is on that night, whether it's basketball, NHL, etc. Also, the same could be said for Mike Tirico and Chris Collinsworth who do the Sunday night games. I like Tirico. I got nothing against him, but he just doesn't do it for me, people. He just doesn't. I prefer Al Michaels there. I don't know what the stalemate was between NBC and Al Michaels. I wish there was a way for them to reunite once again because... Tariko doesn't resonate the way Al Michaels does. That's all there is to it. And that's not a knock on Tariko. We're talking about Al Michaels, one of the all-time greats. And not to say I have the pom-poms for Al Michaels in particular, but when you're used to a Sunday night telecast and you have Tariko, who's done other games in the past, it's not as if he's a new voice or a fresh voice in that NBC booth. I mean, we have heard him, whether it be the Sunday night games after Thanksgiving where Al did the games or when Al late in the year did not do a particular matchup, and Tariko would fill in, and understood, All right, fine, Tariko as a guy who's going to come in as a relief pitcher, no problem, but for him to be week in and week out, and I understand it's not about the announcers, it's about the game itself, but Tariko just doesn't do it for me when I watch these broadcasts, and that's just me, I don't know how you guys and gals feel about it, but that's yours truly, but uh, other games, the Cowboys were able to run it up on the Chicago Bears, they're not running up in the old-fashioned type of way, but the Cowboys had a big lead there, and then the Bears did fight back. They cut a 28-14 lead to 28-23, and they went for two with nine and a half minutes to go in the third quarter, which was just asinine to me. And the stupid analytics, there they go, they crop up again. And I understand you have a rookie head coach in Eberflus, and he's a defensive guy, so he probably didn't know what the hell he was doing. But why you're chasing points 
with 9.34 to go in the third quarter is beyond me. If it was the fourth quarter, all right, I can understand that. But kick the extra point, make it 28-24. As it was, Dallas scored a touchdown on the following drive. So let's just reevaluate this here. You go for two at 28-23. You do not go for the extra point. You go for two. It failed. So now you're down by five. So then the Cowboys score a touchdown to make it 35-23. If you kick the extra point, you're down by 11, which means a field goal, a touchdown, and a two-point conversion will get you back in the game or tie if that was the case, if you were able to stop the Cowboy offense at that point. But since you didn't get the extra point, you go for two, that means you got to get two touchdowns to even take the lead and not have to deal with another two-point scenario until you absolutely have to. But what did they do? They went for two. Didn't matter in the grand scheme of things because they did lose 49-29. to But that was something that irked me beyond belief. And then when I think about it, when the Cowboys actually had a fumble, which was returned by Micah Parsons for a touchdown. And why didn't Justin Fields just go down to touch Parsons while he was already on the turf? Instead, he hurtled over him to where Parsons got up and then ran into the end zone to make it 42-23 is beyond me. That, son, is not knowing the rules or not paying attention to the game. And by him jumping over him to walk off to the sideline and then Parsons, before he could turn around, he's already in the end zone, Just a terrible display by the Bears and they end up losing in Dallas to that big score. Miami, Detroit, Tua with 382 yards passing. They were actually down 27-17 at the half, but two third quarter TDs and the Dolphins were able to get out of the Motor City with a win, which means two in a row as they get themselves back on track with their quarterback on the center after him being out with the concussion, as we all know, and with them starting 3-0, them leveling off at 3-3. Three and three. Now they get themselves righted to where they're 5-3 and three in the AFC. The Vikings are now 6-1 and one and controlling the NFC North. You would think that they should win this division in their sleep. But the one thing about Minnesota, not to throw cold water on my guys, head style in Minnesota and Kev, the Viking fan here in the BX. But the Vikings have beaten nobody. I'm sorry. I get it. You can only play the teams that are in front of you. I understand that you are who you are as far as your record goes. And good for them. Kudos to the Vikings. They've done what they had to do. We all know that the one loss on their record is against the Eagles on that Monday night game. So when we look at their schedule, and yes, they could pound on the Lions and the Saints, even the Bears for that matter. All right, you want to say they beat the Dolphins, but granted it was a third string quarterback. They beat the Cardinals at home yesterday, and the Cardinals, they showed up. They were ready to play, but the Vikings were a little bit too much for them. And as we look ahead at their schedule, they do have a date with the Commanders upcoming. All right, that's going to be nothing to sneeze at. You figure that's going to be a win. But they do go to Buffalo the week after that, and that is going to be a true test. Followed by home dates against the Cowboys, the Patriots, and Jets. All right, maybe not world beaters. The Cowboy game notwithstanding, but back-to-back AFC East teams will be going into that building, where, as we talked about, even with their loss yesterday, but the Jets have been very good here in this first half. The Patriots, you don't know what you're going to get from a Bill Belichick defense. Are you going to get the defense you got yesterday against Zach Wilson or the defense that you got the week before against Justin Fields? So there's that scenario. And when we look on down the list, at Lions, Colts, Giants, at Packers, and Bears. 
Very easy schedule. Again, a couple of speed bumps along the way when you talk about at Buffalo, home to Dallas. Patriots and Jets, I guess maybe I'll throw those games as maybe not difficult, but should be competitive. At Detroit, which that could be tricky. We talked about road games in the division. And then Colts, Giants, who we understand have been good. That's a home game. At Packers, remains to be seen at Bears, which will be cold weather settings. Not that that's going to stop the Vikings, but let's see them when they go up in class over the course of the next few weeks, how they prevail and how they play against some of the better teams in the league. The Broncos finally get a victory, although they had to go to London to get their shot at a win, beating Jacksonville 21-17. I didn't watch this game. Again, you know how I feel about the London games, but the Broncos, let's see if they could turn that win into some better fortune because this has been an ugly first half for that team, for the coach, even for Russell Wilson for that matter. So let's see if they could build some momentum off of that. Yeah, we talked a little bit about Vegas and Josh McDaniels, whether this guy's cut out to be a head coach in the league. It's beyond me. I don't think he is. And again, small sample size, understood. But the expectations in the desert were a hell of a lot bigger than two wins here over the course of the first eight weeks. Yeah, I'm not going to get into Tennessee-Houston. We talked about that briefly earlier. Pretty much our last game on the docket here is the Eagles, who are 7-0, dismantling the Steelers the way they did. Three touchdowns to uh, to A.J. Brown. I was going to say Andre. A.J. Brown there in the first half. They cruise to a 35-13 victory. And the Eagles, last undefeated team, as I said, Jalen Hurts, probably one of the front runners to win MVP if the season would have ended today. But we all know there's still a ton of season to go. There's still 10 more games when you think about it. But it'll go by in a blur because we know the NFL season goes by at the flash of a light. But I'm going to say this. More cold water is going to be thrown. The Eagles, I get it. They are making me look bad by the week. I picked them as an under this year. That's right. Hand raised high in the air. I have looked like a horse's ass. But let them have this magical season to where they're going to go 15-2, and 14-3, and three, be a one seed in the NFC, as I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Going into their bye, they were 6-0, and and the only team that was behind them was the Vikings, and they already had the tiebreaker advantage against them, and then everybody else was pretty much at 500. So the Eagles have a cakewalk, because their schedule is a cupcake the rest of the way. And I understand they got to play the Giants twice, and they got to go to Dallas. Understood. But there's no ifs, ands, buts, babies about it. This team should be a one seed in the NFC. But this is what I'm going to need to see more particularly from the quarterback, but also let's not forget the head coach and the one Nick Sirianni. Let me see this when the bright lights are flashing, when they're on shining bright. And again, I don't want to knock Jalen Hurts. He's done a phenomenal job. I even talked about this last year, although I know I've criticized him and rightfully so, but him being a second pick last year and how this guy could be a sleeper and a dark horse, etc. And he is showing that He is a capable NFL quarterback. Now, we need to see this when the money's on the line, though. Because he could beat up on the Steelers. He could beat up on the Lions. He could beat up on the Commanders. He could beat up on all the bad teams. And like I mentioned, Philadelphia's schedule. All right. Other than the Vikings there, what was it, week two on a Monday night? No problem. And a Jaguar team that went into LA and beat up on the Chargers? 
That's not looking so good right now because they haven't won a game since then. But he could beat up on the, or I should say, the Eagles could beat up on all these bad teams. And yes, they did beat the Cowboys, minus Dak Prescott, at home. And again, more cold water. But let me see this against a good team. A big team. And they're going to see big teams in the playoffs. Whether they're a seven seed, if they happen to upset the two, or just so whatever it could be, five seed, six seed, whatever that team may be. And their schedule, they got a Thursday night game upcoming against the Texans. So you're going to have a lot of Houston, Philadelphia here between the World Series and the NFL over the course of these next few days. Then they play at home against Commanders before they go to Indianapolis to play the Colts. The Packers on a Sunday night, which is not looking like a marquee game to say the least. Tennessee at home, at the Giants, at the Bears, at the Cowboys, Saints, and Giants at home. This schedule has minimum 14-3 and written all over it. And again, I need to see this in January and into February to really grade this team based on what they've done so far this year. Because yes, they could go 14-3, 15-2, but we've seen teams knocked out in the first round or in the division no round in the past. The 15-1 Packers by the Giants that year when the Giants went to the Super Bowl. Last year, and I get it, nothing to scream at, but the Tennessee Titans were a one seed. What happened to them when Cincinnati came into their building? So the Eagles are going to be judged and graded on what happens in January because the rest of this regular season is going to be a joke. That's all I'm saying. So I'm just putting it out there and that's what we have. And then tonight you have Cincinnati playing in Cleveland where Jamar Chase is going to be out four to six weeks with a hip injury. So they lose a key weapon on offense. And the Browns, this is pretty much do or die for them. We know the Browns have been awful. The Browns have just had a nightmare of a season and granted that they're still waiting for their quarterback to be a part of the mix here and a one to Sean Watson and Jacoby Brissett as we knew going in has had his moments but is not the answer at quarterback and for them to look at tonight against a division opponent at home and they have severely underachieved I get it even with the quarterback understood but a lot of people looked at this team even with eight and a half from Vegas as an over and I picked them as an under based on just them being the Browns number one but also the quarterback you have to put that into play goes without saying but let's see if Cleveland at two and five could pull out a victory and not only that give some cushion for the Baltimore Ravens who won their game on Thursday night and with the Bengals who are played well here they won a couple of big games after losing to Baltimore on that Sunday night game let's see if Cleveland could pull off an upset at home there ESPN it is looking like Halloween this coming week it might as well just extend this day through the rest of the week because boy there's going to be nothing but skeletons and graveyards and it is just an ugly schedule Ugh, just looking at it and for starters you have six teams that are on buys Cleveland Dallas Denver the Giants Pittsburgh San Francisco so that's number one Three matchups or you'd have six teams that are out which would have been three more games off the schedule right off the bat. We talked about your Thursday night game Philadelphia at Houston, snooze fest. Here are your Sunday marquee games. Your 425 game which at the start of the year absolutely wow let's focus zero in on this. What could this look like as far as NFC supremacy as far as possible divisional or even maybe even NFC championship game settings and how that will be as far as tiebreakers go 
The Rams visit Tampa is your 425 game. Your Sunday night game, Tennessee at Kansas City. Your Monday night game, Baltimore at New Orleans. I'm sorry, those are three bad games. I don't care what Tennessee's done. They're due to lose. They've played well. They've beaten up on their division. I can see Kansas City running rough shot, and they're coming off a bye, and we know Andy Reid's record coming off a bye is nearly impeccable. So that's for starters. You have the Chargers going to the Falcons, and again, people could say, oh, the Falcons are in first place. Seriously? Miami at Chicago, Carolina at Cincinnati, Green Bay at Detroit, Indy at New England, Buffalo at New York. That would have been a sexier game if the Jets would have won against the Patriots yesterday, but now that's come with a little stink and some stench around it, so that's not going to be, like I said, as sexy as it would have been. Minnesota at Washington, Vegas at Jacksonville, Seattle at Arizona. That is just an eyesore of a schedule. And I'm just going to move on from there. College, not so much as far as what went down in that sport over the weekend. Ohio State, Penn State. Penn State hung in there a little bit for a half, but was no match for the Buckeyes as they went going away in Happy Valley. So the Buckeyes were able to maintain their number two ranking overall in the country. But Tennessee actually inched up a little closer. In fact, they're in a flat-footed tie because of what they did at home against Kentucky, beating them 44-6. to So you have the Volunteers and the Buckeyes, number two in the country, right behind Georgia. And that's going to change this weekend because the big game in college football is Tennessee going to Georgia. And let's see if Georgia, moving up in class, they've had a very good year to this point. But this is going to be the deep end of the pool for the Volunteers. And by far, the biggest game that the school has had You could probably go back to the days of Peyton Manning. I'll say T. Martin because they did win a championship that year. And I'm sure there was a Tennessee-Florida game that was huge in that year where, as we all know, Peyton Manning can never get over that Gator hump. And we know those Gator teams in the mid-90s, they were championship level, led by Steve Spurrier. But this is going to be, in decades, the biggest game that Tennessee is going to face in the regular season since those days. So that's a game that we're going to focus in on next week to see where that stands in the college football playoff discussion. So that's one that we'll look forward to and the biggest game of them all. I'm sure there's a couple other games that will take place as we're now heading into November. But as far as the rest of this past weekend slate, I don't know what happened to Oklahoma State. We know that they lost to TCU there a couple of weeks ago and how they got shut up by Kansas State on the road is just an embarrassment. To have a top 10 ranked team. And I get it. Oklahoma State has not played well here over the course of the last few weeks. But boy, to get embarrassed the way they did on the road. All right, you could lose a game. And a team could upset you. No problem. But to not only get shut out, but to give up 48 points in the process. Forget about Oklahoma State for the rest of the year. And even Wake Forest for that matter. They were the 10th ranked team in the nation. They go to Louisville. And everything is looking fine. Hunky-dory when... They go to Kentucky, and when we look at how the game had played out to where they took a 14-13 lead into the half, and from that point on, I think Wake went to the bus and went to sleep, or I don't know what happened to this team. Not only did they give up 35 points in the third quarter alone, but two pick sixes by Sam Hartman, and you can forget about Wake Forest being anywhere near the playoff possibilities or maybe a sleeper team that could creep up 
They're going to get a bowl for sure, but you can forget about them as they just got ambushed in that third quarter by Louisville to the tune of a 48-21 loss and 35 points in one quarter and two pick sixes. Sam Hartman, what happened? So that's what you have there with college football over the weekend. Other than that, nothing much to scream about other than the embarrassment, speaking of which, the Michigan State Spartan players had against the Wolverine player in the tunnel underneath the bowels of the big house. And four of those players were suspended. Just absolutely inexplicable, inexcusable, just deplorable when you think about it. And we get it. There's a rival between the two schools. But for that display, and it was seen there on video, just despicable to say the least. And four of their players are going to be suspended and good for them. That was just awful to watch as the... Wolverines took it to the Spartans 29-7 at home. But besides that, nothing really else to get into or discuss. And now as we get to the NBA, as I lace on my high tops, I know on Thursday's podcast, and again, only a weekend, we talked about the Lakers and Nets. Are there any cause of concern? Well, the Lakers won a game last night. They beat the Nuggets, so they were the last team to actually get a victory. Who would have thought that? As they beat the Nuggets at home, and then the Nets... Losers of four straight, losing to Indiana the other night, and Indiana is actually going to play them again tonight so they can exact some revenge as they were here in town to play back-to-back games. And I think we've seen that here over the course of the past week where Toronto also played in Miami over the course of three days, two games, as a little quirk in the schedule. And the coach, Steve Nash, was calling the performance by his net team, and I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but... Looked at that as, we have to play better. This is uncalled for. I'm sure you probably used the word inexcusable, which I've said quite a bit throughout the course of this podcast. But then you have the Kyrie thing resurfacing off the court where he posted something about a film that has some anti-Semitic tones in it. And Kyrie just trying to dispel that during the, well not really dispel it, that's not the right word. I guess the best way to put it is that he tried to confront the reporter by saying that I'm not promoting it. What do you know about it? Next question, etc. I'm sorry, Kyrie. Even if you post it on your social media without any words, any captions, etc., you're promoting it. Just like if I'm wearing a pair of sneakers and I'm zoning in on the sneakers, yes, I may not be promoting it, but if I'm wearing on-running sneakers or Under Armour, Reebok, Adidas, and it just shows my feet, me wearing these sneakers, people are going to think, All right, well, he must love these sneakers. He's obviously promoting them in some way, shape, or form. So Kyrie, no matter how much you want to try to sweep it under the rug or say you're not promoting it, come on, my guy, you're promoting it. So the Nets are going to have to deal with that. And of course, the organization has condemned him for saying that, yes, we do not support any of those type of beliefs toward any group, class, creed, people, etc. So now the Nets have to deal with that amidst their four-game losing streak. But that's not what I really want to talk about. I just brought that up only based on the previous podcast talking about the Lakers and Nets. I understand it's only five games in, people, but are the Milwaukee Bucks the best team in the sport considering, A, they're the last team that's standing without a loss in their record and even without Chris Middleton still, no, not with the knee that he suffered last year in the postseason, but with a wrist injury that he had to get surgery for prior to the start of the season, And Pat Connaughton, who suffered a right calf injury during preseason, and he hasn't been able to play as of yet. 
and knowing that they have two important cogs, a starter and a player off the bench who have not played, and they're undefeated, and I'd have to look to see who they played. Yes, they did beat the Nets along the way, and they also beat the Sixers, who I believe at the time had not won a game, and the Nets have been mired in this losing streak, but they still have the talent. But you have to wonder, with Giannis, 34-14 and 14 to start off his year, and Drew Holiday, who, as we all know, is a very good point guard, very steady for that team, plays excellent defense, one of the top defending guards in the sport. And you have to wonder, even without those two guys, do they have what it takes to be the best team at this juncture right now? You have to say they do. They did win a championship two years ago, and I understand it's a bit premature to call them the best team after almost two weeks in the sport. Understood. But I just throw it out there because of what they've done so far and who's not been in the lineup and this Buck team who a lot of people thought could be not only back in the NBA Finals, but people have predicted them to win a final. And why not, considering Giannis is at the peak of his powers, he has a very good supporting cast, and they have not brought in a lot of players this offseason to fortify that roster. It's not as if they brought in other players that could really put a stamp and you would look at it and say, ah, this team really fortified their current state or their current roster to put them in a position where they can get back to a final and win. No, it's pretty much the same team running it back, and even with the likes of Middleton and Connaughton out, they've still been successful here at the start of the season. And don't mind you, that's a dog barking next door. I know, maybe it's my voice. Who knows, it's triggered them to bark while I'm barking on this side of the wall. But yes, that's what you hear, so my apologies ahead of time. But the Bucks are a team that you have to wonder whether or not they're going to be the last team standing in the Eastern Conference as being a representative in the NBA Final. Plenty of basketball to be played. We're just getting started. We're not even into November, but... I got to give it up and shout out the Bucks here so far this early part of the season. But besides that, I'm not going to get into a lot of other things. I know Damian Lillard is out a week or two with a calf injury in his own right. And the Portland Trailblazers have played very well to start off their season. Same for the Utah Jazz. You have a lot of surprises. The Cavaliers have done very well. They're 5-1 and one right behind the Bucks in the Eastern Conference. And we knew that the Cavs were going to be a live dog considering the trade of Donovan Mitchell and what he's done so far to infuse his experience and a little bit of leadership into that young calf team. Good for them. And I hope that they continue to play well and be another team outside of Brooklyn, outside of even Milwaukee, Boston, Philadelphia, Miami as a team that could be reckoned with in the Eastern Conference. And then out West, I know the Warriors have hit the skids here a little bit. As Steve Kerr, not really looking at it as, eh, we're going through a little bit of a rut, but tough that we're going through it early on, as opposed to maybe in the middle of the season with a lot of travel and road trips and maybe just some weariness on the body. But a team that won the championship last year, don't want to call it a hangover because they've been down this road before, but they've gotten off to a slow start here in this early portion of the NBA season. Now as I move on to the NHL, speaking of teams that have gotten off to great starts and maybe whether or not this team is the best in the sport so far, what about the Boston Bruins? The Bruins who, pretty much the same deal like the Bucks. Yes, they bring back two old veteran players who were part of that 2011 championship run and a one Patrice Bergeron and David Krejci. Also add in David Pasternak. Also add in Jake DeBrusque. And this is a team that has gone under the radar here going into the season because a lot of people thought it was going to be maybe the Lightning 
can make another run, especially in the whole conference. I'm not going to talk about the Atlantic. The Florida Panthers with a new coach and also bringing in Matthew Kachuk. We could also talk about with the Rangers and even Carolina and how they've performed last year and a lot of expectations heading into this year. But nobody talked about the Boston Bruins. And here they are. Just, what, three weeks into the season. 8-1, and one, 16 points, tops in the sport. You also got to throw in the Vegas Golden Knights because they're also tied. The Golden Knights. Let me enunciate that a little bit better for your edification. They also have 16 points and 8 wins, but they're 8-2. and two. But the Bruins have the best record in the sport here early on. And this is a team that you would think with their pedigree, with their leadership, and understand we're not even a month into the season. But for those who may have been doubting or may have overlooked them, we know that injuries and a lot could happen. But the Bruins could be a team to be reckoned with here in an Eastern Conference where you have Florida, who is in second place, five points behind them. The Lightning have played a little bit better after their slow start. The Red Wings have been surprising. Even the Buffalo Sabres have been surprising so far this early part of the season. Even the Devils, they've turned it around big time here in the Metropolitan as they got themselves in a win streak to where they're tops with the Rangers in the Metropolitan Division. Also, the Islanders have done pretty well. Had a good come-from-behind victory against the Avalanche there on Saturday. I tell you, when you look at the NHL on a whole, you want to talk about parity. People can look at the NFL, all this parity throughout. There are also a lot of bad teams. And it's not to say there, there aren't any bad teams in the NHL, but the Stars have played pretty well here to get themselves off to a good start. Even the Blackhawks, where a lot of people thought the Blackhawks were going to be dreadful, they played pretty well. Avalanche have leveled off here a bit. The Wild, who started off slow, they've leveled off and have played better. We talked about the Golden Knights. Edmonton, you would think, I picked them to go back to the Cup. They played a lot better winning four in a row. Even Calgary, you got to look at the clip there by Coach Darrell Sutter. He of the old school brand of coaching and what he said about Jonathan Huberdeau where he had to leave the bench to go into the locker room. Just type in Darrell Sutter, Jonathan Huberdeau, and you'll know what I'm talking about. So the NHL is in pretty good shape here. And one other thing I got to throw in, and we talked about this even last year with the Arizona Coyotes, and I'm sure people are going to say, Jay Reels, please, you're going to talk about the Coyotes? What have they done? No, they haven't done much. They're 2-6-2, two, and two, I believe, to start off their season. But last year, remember, in Glendale, where they used to play their games, their lease had run out, and they said, bye-bye. We don't want to take you on anymore, so you're going to have to find a new home. Their new home now is in Tempe, Arizona, where the Arizona State University hockey team plays. Their building seats 5,000, but I believe for hockey it's 4,600. And they had their first game a couple of nights ago against the Winnipeg Jets to where the players were talking about how the atmosphere was energetic. It was louder than they could have ever imagined. There was a lot of enthusiasm in the building. And for the players to even take notice, and I understand that 4,600 fans in a small building could sound like an eruption as opposed to eight, nine, or even 10,000 in an 18,000 seat building. I believe that old building that the Coyotes played was, I think, 16-2 or somewhere around there. But of course, it's going to sound like a hollow echo chamber when you have half or even maybe two-thirds of the building full. And not inspired 
Not a lot of energy and enthusiasm as some of these players have come out and said. But give it up as they try to look for a building to be built in Tempe over the course of the next two years. And I will say this, that's a sad state of affairs to know that an NHL team had to move into a university in their hockey arena. Now we could also look at the NFL where the Chargers, when they moved to LA, they had to play in a soccer stadium, which was 30,000 seats. And I know it was very intimate and it was even charming to a certain degree. But for an NHL team, even though it is the Coyotes and not on a lot of people's radars, but hopefully there'll be some good knowing that they're going to have at least some support there. I get it. That's only going to be 4,600 people in attendance night in, night out. But man, not a good look. But hey, if it's going to work for now, so be it. But I just thought to bring that up. And then the name of the arena, which is actually funny, it's called the Mullet Arena. So you know all the memes and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of posts about this arena and jokes and things of that nature especially if the Coyotes play pretty well who knows they may have a mullet night where they're going to have wigs of people wearing mullets the old 90s haircut where it's short on the side and long in the back who knows but whatever is going to help and what's going to work for the Coyotes and for the league let's hope there's going to be a little bit of success because I'm sure the team is not going to do much throughout the course of the season and then to close out I'm just throwing this in the mix because I'm sure a lot of people follow this guy and he has, I don't know if you want to say come up the ranks. I know that he's big on YouTube. We know about his brother Logan. Obviously Jake is a big YouTuber, his channel. We know that he fights and looks like he's a very good fighter in his own right. And he's had these exhibitions in the past as we've seen just recently Saturday night against Anderson Silva, the MMA legend, as he beat him. And dropped him in the 8th round of a fight between the two combatants. And Jake Paul was just in awe of the whole experience. How he looked up to Anderson Silva. How much of a legend he was in that sport. And how he's now even seeking out Nate Diaz. Another MMA fighter to maybe fight somewhere down the road. The only thing I'm going to say about this. I didn't watch the fight. And people are going to say, oh come on Jay Reels. How are you going to talk about something you didn't watch? Well... I do know Jake Paul. I have watched some of his bouts in the past. I know the famous one when he started it all was against Nate Robinson. We know how that turned out. And I hope Nate, wherever he's at, that he's okay. And let's face it. Paul has skill. He knows how to fight. But can we see something other than him fighting the Anderson Silvers of the world, the Floyd Mayweathers of the world, the Nate Robinsons of the world. All right, he wants to challenge Nate Diaz. That's fine. And I get it that there is a certain rank and a certain class, but I would like to see him fight somebody closer to his age and his weight class. And then I can really base and see how much he deserves to be in the ring with that type of fighter. And understand boxing, it's a, forget about a shell of its old self. It's the shell, bones, and core of its old self. Let's call it as we see it. But for him to fight 47-year-old guys and one Anderson Silva, no offense, we know Silva's a legend, etc. But come on. He cannot fight these guys. And yes, can he take credit for it? Of course, because he's in the ring with them. But let me see him go up against guys that are of his ilk. Guys that, like I said, are more around his age. Or guys that, if they were to call him out, and I don't even know off the top of my head, I don't even know if Terrence Crawford... Or Errol Spence is in the same class. Because I don't even know how much Jake Paul even weighs. That's how much I pay attention to these fights. Because they are exhibitions. 
Yes, I understand that people are going to pay to see Jake Paul because of what he's become over the years. 100%. And again, I'm not knocking his fighting ability. We've seen the guy can fight. Okay? So it's not as if I could go in there. He'll pummel me to submission. I already know that. And listen, I'm 53 years old. So even if I knew how to fight, I still have five years on or six years on Anderson Silva, even if I could fight. And he's an old man when it comes to boxing. But my point is, is yes, we could give him credit. Yes, he got in the ring with these guys. Yes, he was able to win. Okay, great, fantastic. But what does it mean? He doesn't have a belt. He's not a champion. He's not the welterweight champ of the world or a lightweight or whatever he is. So to put a lot of stock in this is useless. It's senseless. So that is my take on it. So yes, I understand people are going to say, oh, there goes Jay Reels throwing a bucket of ice cold water on Jake Paul. You can never do what he's done. I'm not trying to even say that. I'm not trying to knock what he's done. But yes, if I'm going to really take him seriously as a fighter, how about him fighting or how about him training to get in the ring to be one of those guys that are in the WBC, the WBA, the IBF and really go at it to really get a championship belt? If these are tune-ups for him, okay, fine. But come on, my guy. Let me see you step it up. And then really go up against that type of fighter, that type of class, that type of stamina, that type of everything. And if you win then, then you'll get all the kudos in the world from yours truly. That's what I'm trying to say. That'll do it. Another episode in the books. Thank you so much for not only stopping by, but also listening to what your boy has to say about what's happening in the sports universe. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcast. Throw me a few stars, write a review. I greatly appreciate it. Like I said at the top, just to increase the visibility so everybody knows who the J Reels podcast is because I'm going nowhere, people. This is what I love to do. This is what I love to talk about, as I'll get to in a minute. If you want to hit me up on any of my social media accounts, you could do so by going to the J Reels podcast on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, or on Twitter, the J Reels one, just the number, just J Reels one. I may change that in the days and weeks to come. I haven't decided that just yet, but I probably will do so. You'll be the first to know when that happens. Or if you want to hit me up with an email, the J Reels podcast at gmail.com. Hit me up. I'll be more than happy to follow up. And if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page, P is in Paul, AT is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy, dot com slash the J Reels podcast. Whatever you want to put forth to this endeavor, the upkeep of the website, this whole production, altogether, anything and everything to enhance this experience into the microphone, to your earbuds or speakers because whether you do or do not know this is what I love to talk about people it's in the blood it's in the DNA not just one sport not two sports not fantasy football not no all of it all in one giant umbrella this is your one stop shopping for sports talk unlike any other passion fire fury energy thoughts opinions analysis critiques praise on anything and everything that's happening on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the Southeast, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>